Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Nadine Gordimer, thank you for being here in Hay. Can we talk thank first you. of all about um, your latest book, None to Accompany Me, which is, uh, it warns that it's not going to be uh, the most comfortable book, and it's not the most comfortable book. It's set in the period of transition before uh, last year's elections, and we meet people who are suddenly not sure of certainties, which may have been grim certainties before uh, the idea of freedom came. Um, and we have a, a main character, Vera Stark, who, like most of the other characters in the book, is having to reassess her own work as a lawyer with legal foundation and her own relationship with her husband and the rest of her family. How did you set out to write this? How did this book happen? It's always so difficult to say because um, it's, to me it's rather like that bit of grit that gets into the oyster and you hope it may turn into some bumpy little, little pearl at some point. So there would be various um, small events, various emotions aroused by what was happening in the country. But perhaps one of the, the central urges that made me write it was the fact of people coming back from exile and coming out of prison with um, all the idea that they ha ideas they had of home. Home was an idea, but no longer a reality. It was no longer what it was. Certainly in the case of many, because of the removals of whole communities during their absence, some people had been away for more than 20 years. When they were pictured going back to the place where they were born, the village, perhaps a rural village, or perhaps somewhere um, a ghetto outside a small town, it had been moved, it didn't, it didn't exist. And the whole context of, of their lives was, uh, was gone, so that there, was, there could not be any nostalgia even in going back to look for the place that they had come from. This intrigued me. Also the question of um, very young people, the children, some people I've known who were born, black children, born overseas, born in Stockholm, born in, in London, um, born all over the place where people went, East Germany. The language of that country became their language. Their parents had difficulty in, in keeping up some sense of the African language that, that belonged to them. So that there were young people coming back to South Africa with their parents who were black only in the sense of their skin, who really had been cut off from what was their, their, their culture and their, their heritage. And interesting to see how they would react to beginning to mix with um, young people who would normally be there like their siblings. This was the kind of, of event of um, devolution that um, began to fascinate me. There's, there's a, a strong sense in the book of, of what I guess you see in, the, in, in South Africa now, that events are moving very fast, and that unless you are prepared to change, you're going to be left behind. And some of your characters mm. are left behind variously. Mm. Uh, some of them, in, in, in fact, die. Is, is that but a of description course, of the country there's also, is? I think, um, an extraordinary opportunity that doesn't come to many people in many parts of the world, that 
if the, the circumstances change, if the structure around your lives, which is the regime in which you live, the whole social structure, the structure of the laws, if that changes, is it not an opportunity for you to change too? Because you've been shaped by this and now uh, that framework, that structure is broken. You're free of it. It's the question you ask in the book. Does the passing away of an old regime yes. make abandonment of self possible? Uh, and the book seems to suggest that it makes it not just possible, but possibly necessary. That you can't be, you can't be the same old person in a new regime. Yes, I think that's true. Speaking personally, have you changed? Well, I think that um, not only I, but other people like me, we were changing. We've been changing for a long time. The, the fact that we were in, in opposition to the regime, we were in opposition to the prevailing morals, the mores of, um, of the country. Um, we, were in, we were changed internally before the actual legal change and political change came. So we were prepared in a sense. But it still has, of course, some surprises. For me, one of them was one that unfortunately has not had much publicity. It's only the bad things that, seems to be, that seem to get a great deal of publicity. And that was that in January this year, the first week of January, when our school year begins, um, schools were desegregated for the first time virtually for over 300 years. And when you think what happened in America, um, state troops out, police, dogs, black children having to be ex uh, escorted to school. It happened absolutely peacefully, which to me was um, something quite extraordinary that I didn't really think could, could happen. I suspect there are people here who would, um, even in this country, like to see the passing away of an old regime. And, uh, <laughs> but, but maybe, <laughs> but maybe, no, that, that was that was not ironic. We'll, we'll, we'll come to your questions, and, and we will come to your questions in due course. But one of the things that interested me interested me about none to accompany me was that you you have written about the possibility of change uh, in South Africa prophetically in books before in a sport of nature. Mm. Uh, in 1987, you actually predict what we saw. Um, at the end of the book, your, your heroine, Hilela, is standing, seeing the flag going up over a new free uh, South Africa. And it was very moving to read at that time. I wonder if, when you wrote it in, in, in the mid-'80s, you thought it would come within the next decade. Well, it was a bit of wish fulfillment then, and I wasn't too sure that, that, it, that it would come. I knew it would come sometime, but I thought I probably wouldn't be around to see it. It was taking so long to come. And then some years previously, in July's People, mm. you envisioned something uh, much darker, which was a, a South Africa embroiled in civil war, where uh, a white family fled to the home of the houseboy mm. and, and had to accommodate themselves to his people and his ways. And, and uh, that's, that's a much bleaker book. D did you veer between feeling optimistic and pessimistic about what might happen? Can you remember now? Oh, I remember that at the time that I wrote that book, it was everything was at a very low ebb, including my own spirits, because it seemed that whites were simply rushing like lemmings to, to destruction. And there was a very, very great danger that they would not begin to change at all and that there would be the Civil War. So that um, it was not in any sense a, 
a prediction. I was not looking in a crystal ball. I was looking into uh, my compatriots and seeing the possibility that was inside them. Now, do you think the possibility of that kind of, I mean, violence continues, uh, as we know, that the violence of crime continues in South Africa, and in the period up until the elections, the, the, the violence continued. But do you think now, looking ahead, that that, that is over? Or can you see, for instance, um, hopes for a KwaZulu homeland or whatever, provoking the same kind of Well, I think the only danger is um, KwaZulu-Natal. Um, Mangasutu Butelezi is a very dangerous man. He's the product of apartheid. They created him. Um, that is about all one can say to, um, to excuse the, the, the way that, that he continues to behave. The white right wing, which just before the elections last year, we feared very much. You, you may remember that they somehow, through friends in the military, another dangerous thing that we feared, acquired some armoured car and drove right through the glass doors of the entrance where the, um, the deliberations on the Constitution were taking place. Um, and the police stood by, um, unable to do anything or not willing to do anything. So there was a great fear then that there would be some kind of collaboration between the extreme right wing and the police and possibly the army. But um, that is no, there's no longer a fear at all they seem to have um, lost, uh, lost the will, seen that, what they, that they cannot do what they wanted to do. So, and of course the split between them when um, Constant, General Constant Fulun um, moved away from that group and decided to, to um, stand in the, in the elections, that split them. So that's no longer a worry. The only worry is indeed uh, Butelezi. If you look at the kind of backing that he had, he no longer has it. He was the darling of, um, of the West. He was received by Mrs. Thatcher. He was received by Bush. He was um, really regarded as the moderate black man. He was the Bishop Muzarewa, 20 times um, more polished and better received everywhere. But now the West has, is disillusioned, fortunately, with him. And I don't think he's got any, any support anywhere. How he thinks um, he could possibly maintain a breakaway state of uh, KwaZulu-Natal, it just simply couldn't happen. It wouldn't be viable at all. But he can make a lot of trouble, and he does. Now, now there's a split between his supporters and those of the king. The king was formerly his, mouth, his puppet and his mouthpiece. And of course, now we have there in Natal brother, killing brother. But. Um, it's a power struggle, it's not a tribal struggle, because it's within the, the one tribe. And I think it is one danger simply from the point of view that people are getting killed. But it's not something that really affects the rest of the country. There are thousands of Zulus working all over the rest of South Africa who are not involved in this at all. You've said yourself, and, and pe people who've, who've read your books will, will note, that there are stories that you've gone on writing. You've, you've written variations of stories more than once because you found other, other ways to take hold of them. What, what would you identify as stories that you've gone back to more than once? Well, it's amazing when you, you look back. I don't often look back at my, my old books, but um, I think that I was from early on obsessed with the question of the land, who owns the land, even before it was formulated like that in, in my mind. 
because an early story of mine called Six Feet of the Country is really about who owns the land. Um, then there's the conservationist, again. And of course it comes up again very much in this book because Vera's life as a lawyer is concerned with people's right to move back to the land that they were removed from. This is um, a subconscious thing. I wasn't uh, consciously pursuing this. It just seems to, I seem to have had an obsession about it. Well, it is, of course, a very important issue at, at, at the moment. I mean, mm. it's one that's going to be very difficult to resolve. Very. Another thing I've, I've noticed in, in your um, books is women who evolve in the course of the story or the novel into becoming, first of all, politically aware and then, and then politically active. And that character in different forms turns up um, again and again. Who is she? She's, um, she's all over the place in, mm. in South Africa. It's interesting that, um, first of all, the, the um, prominence of women was noticeable, I think, even when, when I was a child, in, in a different field, in that of culture, in the little gold mining town where I lived. If um, there was a concert, if a chamber group chamber music group came to town and performed in the local town hall. If a singer, usually somebody who's, who was uh, really past their peak in Europe, would start touring Australia and South Africa, <laughs> so they would come, um, come our way. Um, it was the women who went and who took along their daughters, I being, being among them. Um, it was regarded that culture, this was a, a, women's, um, a women's affair, you know, like uh, cooking and embroidery. And then when it came to, um, first of all, to liberalism and on to, to radical positions, um, certainly in liberalism, the women were very prominent. You think of an organization like the Black Sash. Why mm. was there a women's organization to defend um, the rights of both men and women? How come that there wasn't something called uh, the black tie or the black socks, an organization <laughs> of men? <laughs> How come there aren't more um, women writers then? I mean, th th there are. I, I said earlier that mm. it is a, a spectacular array yes. of South African writers, but, but mostly mm. men. I can't explain that really, except insofar as black women are concerned, because there are even fewer black mm. women writers. Um, it's mainly because of the not only the general attitude that all blacks suffered under, but the, the position of a girl in the family so that she would always be taken out of school and sent out to work in order to pay for her brother to continue his education because it wasn't regarded as any kind of vocation uh, for, for a girl to expect uh, to, to be educated. And I think obviously that this um, lack of, um, of education has meant that fewer women have been able to develop themselves as writers. On more than one occasion, your books have been banned in, in, in the past. How important then is literature uh, in, well, how important was literature in South Africa and how important now? Presumably to have a book banned means that uh, somebody felt it was dangerous, which is encouraging. Yes, I think that um, in a very backhanded way it was encouraging, but of course if you write a book, you want, you want it to be read. If you're fortunate enough to write in the English language and to have it published outside, it's going to be read, but you want to be read by your own people. So it was three times in my case, four times if you count an anthology that I collected of, of other people's writings. Um, it's a feeling of being a kind of ghost mm. because you're, um, 
the old quote that I've used as a title of, of a book, it is, as a writer, your essential gesture. It's the way you put out your hand to, to your, um, your fellow South Africans or fellow English people, or whatever, is through, through your work. Um, and there was no, we never succeeded in some sort of samizdat or underground mm. distribution of, um, of books. I've often been asked about it. I think it was mainly because the spy system was so highly developed. It was a time for more than 10, 15 years, 70s, through middle 60s, through the 70s, when you really couldn't trust anybody. There were some spectacular incidents of people with whom you were really very friendly and with whom you spoke openly. And there were many things you couldn't speak openly about, things you were doing that you didn't want other people to know. And then it was discovered that this person was actually a paid informer anyway. So I think that was why we somehow couldn't get, get uh, some kind of distribution of, um, of banned books or printing of brand books. Uh, reading profiles um, and interviews with you, you're, you're, you insist that you're not a, a political writer. And I, and I think that's so, because your business is truth. And uh, you're not a propagandist. Mm. No, that wasn't. I, that was a straight, <laughs> straight comment. I but try it, for it. <laughs> it seems to me you're a, you're a very moral writer, in that uh, you, you said earlier that um, being part of the movement and, and, and part of the struggle, without being uh, an evangelist or a propagandizer, uh, all your books are opposing evil, if you like, mm. and that and that, and that, that there is an essential morality mm. to, to to your work. Where does that come from? I really don't know. I don't know. That's a, a mystery to me. But I think that um, a life like mine as a writer there was, has been, in a way, a bit schizophrenic because I was always conscious that I couldn't say, well, I'm a writer and I will, that's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to take part in any kind of public activity. I'm not going to um, protest. I'm not going to sign things. Um, Writing, that's, that is my life, and that is whatever contribution I have to make to my society, that is that. But um, I had to try and make a, a difficult decision, and that was that if I wrote what I wanted to write, it was going to be offensive sometimes to my own side. In other words, that um, black characters or um, people in the struggle of whatever color, if they were not shown as angels, I would be letting down the side. But of course, I did that again and again. My characters have always been warts and all. And um, I think to the great credit of um, my comrades in the movement, I have not been reproached or attacked or told at any stage that I was um, doing the wrong thing, that I should rewrite my characters. Given your, your professed commitment to truth, and you have written about that specifically, and you talked about it when you were awarded the Nobel Prize, and, and it, it's, it's a passage that I've quoted at more than one conference, usually when I'm talking about journalism. Mm. Why did you choose fiction rather than factual writing? Why did you become a, a fiction writer and, and, and not a journalist? I know you have written non-fiction mm. works as well, but principally you write fiction. Is that a better mode for conveying truth? Oh, to be, there's no question. Journalism deals with surface reality. Um, there's no question for me about that. And in any case, um, it's, it's something to do with, with the imagination. All of us who, who write fiction are born with um, a very 
keen sense of the a very keen faculty of the imagination. We're we're always making up things and dreaming from from this from this age. So that it comes about naturally the way somebody who happens to have the kind of vocal cords that are right to become a singer simply becomes a singer, opens the mouth and sings. But you're making a distinction there between reality and, and, and truth. Say more about that. Well, truth, I think, comes out of reality. I've quoted in the, in, in, as an epigraph in this book a little line from Proust. Never be afraid to go too far, for the truth lies beyond. And I think that um, fiction writers, writers of the imagination, must go. We try to go too far. It's quite an ambiguous and dangerous instruction. A lot of your characters go too far as well. And uh, uh, particularly in terms of what I, I wouldn't call it moral frailty, but they're, they're, they're sexually adventurous, many of your characters. Mm. And you, you describe their adventures with, with complete dispassion uh, and, and sometimes with some sympathy, if not empathy. You're, you're no Calvinist. No, no, no. We've had enough Calvinism in my country. <laughs> <laughs> Um, is that uh, the, 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 the concentration throughout stories and, and novels on, on the sexuality of your, of your characters, is that metaphoric or is it, wh why did you concentrate on that as, as you have done? Why is it important? Simply because in my experience of life, there are two, two of the strongest of strongest drives are sex and politics, and very often very close together. People with, um, with, with a great um, political sense and political motivation and drive very often, I've discovered, have very, are very highly sexed people. It seems to be part of um, an intensity of living that they go together. A tremendous concern about your fellow human beings this goes along with a, a, a wish and a desire to live fully in every way. You've written about um, the process of writing, and, and you said, of course, one, one, one takes real-life experience and, and, and uses it um, w without wondering whether this makes you a welcome guest at all occasions. Um, say something about the, what you call the rupture between the writer and society, how at the one time you have to be empathizing with people, identifying with them, and at the same time separating yourself from mm. them? Well, I think we fiction writers are in a way monsters because um, we are doing both mm. at the same time. We're, we're involved and um, we're always observing and watching and reading the things that people don't say mm. and the things that they desire to do and don't quite get to do. So that there's this, uh, this tension out of which the work comes. Is there anything peculiar to being a writer in South Africa, would you guess, as, as, as to anywhere else in the world? In the sense that writers who come from situations of great social conflict, I think, have something in, in common, um, which writers do not have who don't come from that kind of... Um, it perhaps is a, a kind of intensity. Though I think that if you really are a writer, you can make the death of a canary affecting. It, you, you're not made by, by great events. 
in your in your country. You've talked about the and you've spoken about the unwritten orthodoxy that uh, that, that black characters are heroes and and uh, mm. and, and white characters are, are villains. Is this something that actually characterizes writing in South Africa now? I know that you're involved in, in, in encouraging new writers and young writers. Is, is that a fault you find in them? The orthodoxy. Mm. Well, fortunately, that orthodoxy is now, it was never written down, but it is, so to speak, psychologically torn up. Thank heaven for that. So that. Um, we must talk now about black writers particularly. Black writers are now free not to put that same grid on their imagination, that you have to have a certain set of circumstances, you have to have people playing particular roles, and you mustn't step out of that. You have to have the, the, the brutal policemen, God knows there were enough of them. Um, you have to have the, the slimy um, white liberal um, who, who cried crocodile tears and kept on living the same way and wouldn't risk anything. Um, things of, of this nature, you had to have the absolutely wonderful and heroic black mother and so on. And you couldn't write about um, your childhood, though in fact even if you put the, the political slant on it, what could be more political than a black child's childhood than coming to have to realize how you have to live, how restricted you are. Um, it's early days to see how people will use this freedom. Some writers um, have did so already, sort of thought to hell with this orthodoxy. Um, I'm now in a position where I'm going to write what I want to do. Though um, Eskian Pashlele did it years ago in the 50s when he wrote a book called Down Second Avenue with wonderful stories in it that, that didn't have this grid on it. And um, more recently, you've had somebody like Njibulo and Debele with his stories, Fools, with a lot of, um, of stories there that, that come from childhood, come from a rural background, and are not the, uh, the, the usual thing. I, I was in uh, Johannesburg a couple of weeks ago, and there was much debate about what South African culture could be, should be, might be, whether the freedom to put on uh, Ray Cooney farces was, uh, was actually a a freedom that should be enjoyed, mm -hmm. or, or whether there was a new aridity and people weren't quite sure what to write about and do anymore. Um, is, is there a, a, a sense of, of the freedom to, to not, not have to write about the struggle and the movement actually leaving a, a great void now? I don't think so. I think quite on, on the contrary. Look at the remarkable new things there are to write about have to go back again to the question of all the exiles coming back. People who move from Soweto, from Tokoza, from all over the place, and move into Hillbrow, this um, highly overpopulated uh, flatland, where indeed, which has now gone completely, completely black. Um, the different strains, the joys that people look forward to when they, when they get out of the ghetto and they move into the white, what was formerly the white town. And then the sometimes a sense of loneliness. Mm. Some people feel rather lost. The neighborliness has gone. The sense of support. It's, it's another jungle there. They thought that they were leaving the jungle behind in, in Soweto or, or in Alexander Township, but they find the, the other jungle. Then there are other people um, on a higher economic level 
who move into the, 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 the white suburbs, into suburbia. Um, and several have remarked to me, I don't even know the name of the people next door. And when we moved in, they didn't come over and say hello. So there are many different mm. things happening. And of course, the, the tensions in, um, in, in the competition for, for jobs that um, was not there before because blacks were shut out of certain positions. And, and is the, do you get the sense that there's a great backwash of people who've been desperate to express themselves and now have the opportunity to do so? And, uh, and, uh, uh, no, I don't. The doors? I don't, but I think it's, it's early days. Something we haven't mentioned is the theatre. Mm. And actually, as part of literature, the theatre has been far more alive, far more innovative for the last um, almost 10 years all during the apartheid period and right up to now. Some of the market theatre in Johannesburg in particular has visited, the, um, written a few times, so there's some familiarity with some of the work they've done there. But John Carney, it was John Carney who was saying he was looking forward to putting on um, Ray Cooney farces. And I don't know why that made me pause. I just thought, I mean, I, it, it seemed uh, Richard Eyre wouldn't say that at the National <coughs> Theatre. No, but I think there is this sort of um, eclectic desire now. Why am I putting down Ray Cooney farces? I mean, yes. No, no. Well, I mean, was he serious? Perhaps it was tongue in cheek. <laughs> well, it was on the BBC, so oh, it must be yes, true. Yes, it might yeah. have been. <laughs> but there is now, of course, another complex like the market. Um, it's called the Windy Brow Theatre. I don't know whether you, you no, went there. And it's really rather nice because it's a huge old Victorian mansion, very ugly, with every kind of folderol and uh, <laughs> little turrets and things, built by what we call the Rant Lords, one of the, the early mining magnets. And it was falling to bits and it has been now um, restored and it's being used as a, a theatre and cultural complex. And there, of course, it's even um, on, on a, a different level than the, than the market theatre because lots of young people come and try out their little plays, their, their efforts and are helped to develop there. So we've now got two centres doing this. You sound positive and excited about what's happening. And one of the most surprising things, I think, and I, uh, th th that I saw when I was there was the, the announcement of who was going to serve <coughs> on the new Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Now, for somebody who is as, as committed to truth as you have been, even th isn't this an extraordinary thing, the idea that people can go to the commission and can say, Yes, I, uh, I sin, I suppose, and, and, and effectively get absolution. Mm. Yes, it's, um, it's a very interesting idea. It's a profoundly Christian idea mm. that you get absolution. But of course, <laughs> there are many, many difficulties about it. Suppose you are the child, <coughs> you're the child um, of a family whose father has been kidnapped and killed by me. I was ordered in the, I'm a member of the hit squad and I was ordered to do it. You have now grown up much disadvantaged by the fact that you had, that your father was killed in this way and <coughs> you have an idea from the talk in the community that I was in charge in a certain part of the police at that time and that it's, it's known, it's believed that I was the one who did it. I then get to hear of it. I scuttle along to the truth commission and say, I did it, and I'm then absolved. 
<coughs> because to be indemnified is to be insolved. You cannot sue me for the loss of income to your family. I don't know how you would feel about it, how people feel about it in that, in that situation, whether they would not be tempted to take some revenge upon me, perhaps um, put a knife in my back one dark night. There are others, of course, people um, whom I know, um, who have said that they have this terrible obsession to see the face of, of the person who did it, to have that person admit it, and then they would be at peace. Mm. And they have no feelings of wanting to revenge themselves at all. But I think that such people are in the minority. Mm. So there are many difficulties with the Truth Commission. But the only um, alternatives were um, a Nuremberg mm. trial situation, which we did not want. We know how that ends. Or um, simply leaving the murderers among us without any way of um, facing the past and making some kind of move toward um, reconciliation with it. Time is going fast, so let's, let's hear um, from none to accompany me, and then after that, I'll open it up to questions. It's difficult to take a passage out of um, a long novel. I have to give a word of explanation. Vera Stark is, um, as Sheena has already said, she works as a lawyer in a legal foundation. And um, there's a young clerk called Opa, Opa Sajaki, who works there with her. He's really her, her he works for her in this organization, and he's also studying law at the same time. And they go off on um, a tour of the country looking at areas where people have been dispossessed of their land um, in order to inform themselves about cases they're going to bring to get this land returned. Coming back to, um, to Johannesburg, their car is hijacked. And in the course of this hijacking, they're both injured, they're both shot, she in the leg, and he um, flesh a wound here somewhere in the body. They're both in, in hospital, and um, she comes out of hospital a little later than, than he did because her wound didn't heal up too well. Um, and he has gone back home, and she presumes that he's back at work. We pick up from there. Mrs. Stark returned to her office on Monday morning and was told that Opa was back in hospital. It was early, the story was vague, only the receptionist at his desk. Opa had sat about in a funny way last week. He was bent and he couldn't breathe properly. Then he went to the doctor and he didn't return. Someone phoned the doctor and was told he'd been sent to hospital. And then, what did this doctor say was the matter? No further sense to be got out of a young man who didn't pay attention to what he heard, was incapable of reporting anything accurately. No wonder messages received at the foundation were often garbled. Irritation with the Foundation's indulgence of incompetence distracted her attention as she called the doctor's paging number. She reached him at the hospital. Slow internal bleeding, the lung. Well, difficult to say why. It seemed there was an undetected injury sustained when the bullet penetrated, perhaps a cracked rib, and some strenuous effort on the part of the patient had caused a fracture to penetrate the lung. It was being drained. The condition was stable. <coughs> at lunchtime, Mrs. Stark and Lazar Feldman 
went to visit their colleague. What should they take him? They stopped on the way to buy fruit. At the hospital, they were directed to the intensive care unit. Whites habitually misspell African names. Mrs. Stark repeated Opa's. Wasn't this a mistake? The direction was confirmed. As they walked shining corridors in a procession of stretchers pushed by masked attendants, old men bearing wheeled standards from which hung bags containing urine draining from tubes attached under their gowns, messengers skidding past with beribboned baskets of flowers, unease grew. The community of noise and surrounding activity fell away as they reached the last corridor. Only the squelch of Lazar's rubber soles accompanied a solemnity that imposes itself on even the most sceptical of unbelievers when approaching a shrine where unknown rites are practised. She shook her head and shrugged to Lazar. What would Opa, taking home his bullet in a cigarette pack, recovered from what had happened to him and to her on the road, what would he be there for? She pictured him, sitting up in bed, ready to tell the story to his visitors. At double doors there was a bell under a no-entry sign. They rang and nobody came. So Vera walked in with Lazar lifting his feet carefully and placing them quietly behind her. Cells were open to a wide central area with a counter, telephones, a bank of graphs and charts, a row of white gowns pegged on the wall. A young black nurse in toweling slippers went to call the sister in charge. Was the place empty? Is there nobody here? The weight filled with a silence neither could recognise the presence of unconscious people. The sister in charge came out of one of the doorways, pulling a mask away from nostrils pink as a scrubbed skin pleated on her knuckles. Ward three, oh, we're pleased with him today, he gave us a smile this morning. The nurse was signalled to take the packet of fruit from Lazar, nothing by mouth. They robed themselves in the gowns. <clears throat> on a high bed, a man lay naked except for a cloth between the thighs, a body black against the sheets. Tubes connected his body to machines and plastic bags, one amber with urine, another dark with blood. The sister checked the flow of a saline drip as if twitching a displaced flower back into place in a vase. The man had his back to them. They moved slowly round to the other side of the bed to find him. Opa. A naked man is always another man, known only to a lover or the team under the shower after a match. Friendship an office coterie identifies only by heads and hands. The body is for after hours. Even in the intimacy of the injured on the road, bodies retain their secrecy. Opa, his fuzzy lashes on closed eyes, the particular settle of his scooped round nostrils against his cheek, his mouth, the dominant feature in a black face, recognised as such in this race as in no other, with an aesthetic emphasis created by highly developed function since we speak and sing through the mouth as well as kiss and ingest by it. His mouth, bold lips parted, fluttering slightly with uneven breaths. He's asleep, we'll come back later. The sister stood displaying him. No, unconscious. It's the high fever we're trying to get down. Speak to him. Maybe if he knows your voices, they'll rouse him. Sometimes it works. Go on, speak to him. With these gentle calls, you bring a child back from a nightmare or wake a lover who has overslept. Opa, Opa, it's Lazar. Opa, it's Lazar and Vera. Opa, it's Vera. She took the hand that was resting near his face. It felt to the touch 
like a rubber glove filled to bursting point with hot air. His eyes showed the movement of the orbs beneath the skin. They talked at him chivvyingly. What do you think you're doing here? Who said you could take leave, man? My desk's a mess. We need you. Oh, Pa, it's Lazar. It's Vera. And his head stirred, or they imagined it, under the concentration they held on his face. There, he hears you. You see? Now nurse is going to give him a nice, cool sponge down. In the reception area, Vera waylaid the woman as she strode away. Why is he in a fever like this? What's the reason? Septicemia. The blood leaked into the body's cavity, you see. The lowered tone of confidential gossip. Of course he should have had himself admitted the moment he had symptoms. Dosed himself with brandy instead. But I'm telling you, at least he hasn't gone down. He's fighting. We're pleased with him. The nurse came to Lazar with a packet of fruit. It was become evidence of their foolish ignorance, his and Mrs. Stark's of the nature of the anteroom in life to which they'd been directed, of this retreat for those upon whom violence has been done, where their colleague had entered as one enters an order under vows of silence and submission. By contrast, the uninitiated are clumsy and intrusive and have only the useless to offer. Oh no, keep it, won't you? A giggle of pleasure. Oh, thanks, eh? Lovely grapes. <coughs> There was an official roster of Foundation colleagues taking turns to visit the hospital every working day. At weekends, others felt they had the right to disappear into their private lives. Mrs. Stark was older, there were surely no urgencies of family demands, love entanglements, waiting to be taken up for a woman like her. She joined the trooping crowds of relatives and friends who filled the hospital on Saturday and Sunday. Out of works, beggars and staggering meth drinkers officiously directed cars and minibuses searching for parking. Sleeping children were slung round the necks of fathers. There were girls adorned and made up to remind male patients of their sexuality. Africana aunts in church-going hats. Bored young men gathered outside for a smoke. Indian grandmothers sitting in their wide-swathed bulk like Buddhas. Popcorn packets and soft drink cartons stuck behind the pots of snake plant and philodendron intended to distract people from the bleak asepsis, the smells and sights of suffering. The same plants that stand about in banks to distract cues from their anxiety in the power of money. The first Saturday and Sunday, and the second. Opa, the body that was Opa, identified by the mute face, lay as he was placed, on this side or that, sometimes on his back. And that was something to stop the intruder where she stood, entering the cell that was always open. No privacy for that body, on his back, totally exposed. Once she asked if there could be a sheet to cover him and was dismissed with impatience at ignorant interference. He was kept naked because every bodily change, every function had to be monitored all the time. He was kept naked to fan away the heat of infection raging in there. See the flush in his face, the purplish red mounting under the black. When she was alone, with him but alone, she carefully he must never know, even if he were to be aware of the need for the small gesture it would humiliate him. She drew the piece of cloth between his legs, over the genitals that lolled out, ignored by nurses. Sometimes he seemed asleep as well as unconscious. The breathing changed. The men she'd slept with breathed like that deep in the night. She wanted to tell him she, at least someone, was there, yet it was a violation to touch him when he seemed so doubly, utterly removed. At other times she stood with her hand over his, 
It was a gesture she knew from other circumstances. She fell back on it for want of any other, because nobody knew what he might need or want. They believed he had no thirst because salt water dripped into his veins. They believed he did not feel vulnerable in his nakedness because fever glowed in him like coal. Whether or not the people he shared the flat with came to see him, she did not know. And moving away from the black townships, he'd lost touch with neighbours and friends there. Most didn't know where he lived now, in a building among whites. Very likely, they wouldn't have been allowed in to see him if they had come. The sister in charge made it clear that visits were restricted to his employer, since it seemed he had no family. Of course he has a family. But who knew how to get in touch with a plump young woman sitting among all the women who left behind in felt houses, put together as igloos are constructed for what the environment affords, snow or mud? No one had an address. As an employee and as a patient, Opar had given his permanent address as Flat 121, Delver Wood. The only way to reach her was to retrace the journey from the turn-off at the eucalyptus trees. Could someone from the Foundation be spared to drive there? Mrs Stark knew the way, but her husband, supported by her son out from London on a visit, absolutely forbade her to revive the trauma of the attack in this way. During the week, Lazar Feldman and others tiptoed in and stood a few minutes, afraid of closeness to what the familiar young man about the office had become, the grotesque miracle of his metamorphosis. One of the clerks who had meekly suffered because she was too plain to attract him, wept. They went away, and some found excuses not to come again. What did visits help a man, said to be Opa, who did not know there was anyone present, did not know that he himself was present? Vera glanced at her watch and set herself the endurance of 20 minutes, but she forgot to look at the dial again. An insect settles on a leaf and slowly moves its wings. She sat and watched. The fat nurse and the thin one, the Chinese and the black. Nurses are known by rank and the most obvious features. They seem to have no names. They came and went, marking the passing of time ritually as the tongue of a church bell striking against its palate, where traffic is not yet heavy enough to break the sound waves. How ignorant, how far away from this she'd been curious about death. What's it like? This is what it's like. An anatomical demonstration that spares nothing. When in church between her mother and father, she heard about that moral division, the soul and the body, and grew up unable to believe in the invisible, what the priest really was talking about and didn't know it was this. What he called soul was absence. The body was presence. It was swollen now, not only the hands. One day when she walked in, there was a young man's flat belly blown up the skin taut and shiny, a version in a funfair distorting mirror. To look for identity in the face was to be confronted by an oxygen mask. The Chinese gave it a touch to make it what she judged would be more comfortable, if one could feel. The black used a little blood-sucking device to draw specimens from a huge toe pierced again and again. The fat one cleaned the leaking anus. If one could feel, the dumb creature that is the body cannot tell. It is an effigy of life ritually, meticulously attended. Outside, in between times, the nurses eat grapes, arrange on the counter flowers left behind by dead patients, and whisper forbidden telephone calls to children home from school and boyfriends at work. 
Vera no longer imagined the plump young woman down the turn off from the eucalyptus trees and phrased what she ought to be saying to her. Her son, back at the house where he was conceived, disappeared from her awareness as if he were still in England. The wheeze and click of machines that now breathed for the body and eliminated its waste chattered over its silence. Remote from her, within that awe, a final contemplation was taking place. Isn't that what it is? What it's like? The years on the Robben Island, night study to be a lawyer in what the politicians promised to be a new day, freedom from the dimensions of a flat in a white suburb, a box cart pulled through the dust by children. Who knew what the final contemplation must be? In that silence, she saw that the certainty she had had of death, Zef Rapalana's death among the nine killed at Odensville, when Zef was in fact to appear before her alive, was merely a missort in time, a letter first delivered to the wrong address. The certainty belonged to her where it reached her now, in this place, in this presence. Among the casualties of violence listed in the newspaper is a clerk in the employ of the legal foundation, Opa Sejaki, who has died of complications resulting from an injury received when the foundation's vehicle was hijacked. <clears throat> Thank you. We have time for questions, and um, it's preferred that you use the microphone that's held by this gentleman here. So if you'd like to ask a question, could you put your hand up, and then we can kind of um, organize a, there's a gentleman up in the middle up there. Anyone else? Well, that's right. And anyone else? Well, that'll do for starters. Madam, I'm sure everybody's very impressed with the way South Africa got through their terrible troubles, but in our newspapers we hear of two or three things. And I've got a three-part question which perhaps you can give me your opinion about. One of them is that um, you mentioned already uh, people have been made promises about housing and they seem to be very concerned about the fact that whether they're going to get it. And the other one was uh, the people you've already mentioned who go to the contrition classes, which I don't think is going to fade away. And the third one is, uh, what happens after Nelson Mandela? Would you be kind enough to give us your opinion on whether the other shoe's going to drop? And It's rather like the phony war at the beginning in '39. We're wondering if this is really as peaceful as it looks. Mm -hmm. Do you mind answering that? Well, you asked about housing. Um, I think it's very strange and unfair, though understandable, that the rest of the world says, you've got all these people without houses, what have you done? We have had one year, one year to make up for a vast problem that really dates from the end of um, the Second World War. That was when the, the squatter camps began. You have to plan. You've got to find the sites. You have to set up the whole structure you have to find the finance to build thousands and thousands of houses. This has begun, but as only a small portion of it is achieved, and it's going to take, I think it's going to take five to ten years. 
And you have to consider the, the, uh, the, the rise in population during that time. I'm quoting from uh, people who know more about it than I do. For people to be given a roof over their head, a decent roof over their head. But there are very encouraging things are happening on a, on a smaller scale. One of the reasons why black people could not improve the little shacks or houses that they have was that they could not raise mortgages, they couldn't raise loans from the banks, they didn't have sufficient collateral to do this. And one of the things that um, Joe Slovo, who was the Minister of Housing, did in the last year of his life and the first year of, of our government, he managed to negotiate with the banks so that um, small loans are available to people to improve their present um, living conditions and they can repay um, sums that they are able to afford. This may sound a small thing, but it's very important. There's a great wish among people to own their own, their own homes. Um, one more fact about living conditions and housing. For you and for me and for everybody here, you just turn the switch and, and you've got the light and uh, you turn on your, your heater and you turn on your, your stove. Um, this is something that millions in, in South Africa did not have. In the area where I live, in the one year, 80,000 people have had um, electricity installed in their houses. I think that's a good start in, in one year. We turn to the question now of um, Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela is something of a miracle indeed, and he is the, the greatest statesman in the world today. I think that's unquestionable. There's nobody of his caliber anywhere else, and we are unbelievably lucky to have had him to steer us into um, the, the, the open society that we now have. But he is getting old. He's going to be 76 in July. But it's not a one-man show, as it appears to be. The problem is that Nelson ha is such an extraordinary figure, and he's so widely known in the world. He's regarded as he's a kind of messiah, really, or a Moses, the way that he has, uh, he has, this is the way he's perceived. He's become legendary everywhere. And it's difficult when people, when he's invited somewhere, for him to bring one of the younger people with him and insist that they go before the, tele the television cameras, that they make major speeches. Everybody only wants Mandela. But we have, you know, off the top of my head, I could name four men in their, they happen to be men, in their 40s, early or middle 40s, who are extremely capable, highly intelligent, and good politicians who follow the same political philosophy as he does. And he is someone who consults all the time. He does not make major decisions on his own. So I think that the, the, the succession is not something that um, worries us at home the way it worries people in the outside world, because we know and hear these other people, like um, Tabo Mbeki, Cyril Ramaphosa, two names that you may have heard of, but there, there are others. And the third point was uh, some scepticism about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that uh, peace without justice might, might oh, yes. be as problematic as you suggested. I don't know if you want to say any more about that. Yes, well, I had forgotten that we had talked about that before we yeah. came in here. Um, I thought we talked about it already, but we haven't talked about it here, so well, I might just read briefly. So I don't know if you want any more. No, I think we don't need to talk about it again. Yeah. There was a question here. Um, as a fellow uh, white African, uh, 
left Kenya when the corruption became unbearable. Uh, do you think South Africa is going to avoid going down the same path that has made so many new African countries ungovernable? Well, naturally, I sincerely hope so. And at present, there's great vigilance. Um, where corruption occurs, it has been quickly exposed. But uh, one always has this, uh, this fear, so one couldn't um, make any guarantees about it. But I do think that if we, if we keep on with the, with the vigilance that we have, it will occur, but it will not go undetected. Coming from South Africa, doesn't it make you feel slightly odd that you're addressing so few black faces here? Well, I'm in Wales. I'm, I'm, I'm don't expect... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I really don't know. Are there many? That's going to be a question for the organisers. Mm. Any... Yes, the gentleman over here. And if, if you'd like to ask a question, could you put your hand up so I can uh, direct the microphone bearer? I just want to ask a question about writing, please, and not about South Africa. Good. Uh, I very much enjoyed, um, very much enjoyed your, your short story writing, uh, particularly this, the selection you did under the title of Jump. Uh, I wonder if you've got any more plans for any more short stories, and do you find it a difficult or an easy medium? Well, it was my first medium, the short story. I began writing short stories, and I've always much enjoyed writing them. But I found, as I got older, that I write fewer and fewer, something that I, I regret. That um, what occurs to me and what I want to write turns out to be on the scale that requires uh, a novel. Um, but I regret that and um, I would like to write more stories. That differentiation between being a writer and, and being South African, I mean, does it irritate you that people ask you about South Africa rather than writing, purely writing? I have to say that I, I, I see the two, when I think of you, I think of you, mm. of those two strands inextricably linked. I don't think they're really inextricably linked because um, I was a writer long before I really knew where I was living or knew the significance of where I was living. But um, somehow the being asked questions about South Africa, over the years, especially during the apartheid years, I welcomed these questions because I had an opportunity to, to say what was happening there face to face, not simply people reading um, something in the newspaper or seeing it on, on television. And I felt that in a small way I could help to um, tell something of the truth or to, to dismiss some misconceptions that people had. And um, now it's um, more or less um, for the same reason that I, I don't mind having questions about South Africa, because I think there are still things that um, people don't understand and that are to the advantage of uh, South Africa that these should be understood, especially if we're going to have uh, the, the, the um, kind of development and investment through investment that we need. Yes. This is about... This is about writing too, um, and you'll have to forgive me if I rejoice in the fact that you're a woman writer. In The Essential Gesture, you, you I think, say something about writers being androgynous, mm. and I'm very interested in that. C could you say something about that? Or is well, I think they are. Um, I don't like 
to see um, a writer described as a woman writer or a gay writer. Uh, you never hear anybody described as a male writer. <laughs> I don't like labels. But isn't that because male writers are the status quo, arguably? I suppose so, but you know, the, the principle is there. Mm -hmm. There's a hand there, yes. Can you, can you gallop? Thank you. Because I know we're going to be whooshed out of here very soon. It would be nice to have a circus here. I feel we're doing the wrong thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, <coughs> I, I don't know how many languages there are in South Africa, but, but is, is literature, poetry, fiction being shared across languages, either through translation or, or in what ways is, is that important now? Well, I'm glad that you, you asked that question because it's a great concern of mine and of other people like me because people write in English a little bit in, in Afrikaans, but even the Afrikaans writers either translate themselves or have others to translate them. So English is the language of literature there. And I know, I've discovered through running workshops for the Congress of South African Writers, um, that there are many people who, when they tell you a story and tell it in English, it's, um, it's not in Mandarin English, thank heaven. It's in South African English, it's in Black English. And then when you say, right, this was a wonderful story, when we meet again, bring it, bring it to me, you've written it. It's absolutely dead. Because the idea is the written word must follow a certain formula. So that would be the dialogue must be the way it sounds in a sitcom on, on TV or that you read you know, in, in a comic book. And the whole thing is absolutely flat. So I'm sure that such people, because you, they prove they have ideas and imagination, if, if this person could write in his or her own language, you would have something remarkable. Why can they not? Why have they not? Because nobody would publish them. And why would nobody publish them? because there's no distribution among the people who would, <clears throat> who would read, who would want to read this. In the enormous townships, um, there are no libraries, and there are certainly no bookshops. The libraries in, um, within the city itself have been for some, some years now, almost a decade, open to everybody. They were closed to, to black people, all during my youth and, and childhood, indeed. But, People like to use libraries where they live. Not everybody can come in into town uh, to do this. And they just are not, as I say, outlets which, which would merit anybody publishing um, books in African languages. But that is something that um, we are hoping, we writers um, in the Congress of South African Writers and in other writers' organizations are pressing for very strongly. Is that something that internationally, I mean, your vice, vice president, <coughs> is it of Penn? Yes. International. Is that the provision of libraries or books for libraries? Is is, is that something that, that that people outside South Africa could take part in helping with, or is yes. that an internal thing? For years, people have been willing to send us books, but you know the distribution is the point. If you haven't got libraries through which they can be distributed, and this is something that requires big money. When I get an opportunity, if I'm abroad in Europe or I'm in America, um, to talk to various um, aid agencies and so on. If you want to do something that is 
absolutely clearly not political, but you can certainly give big money to establish libraries. Non, that's not political? Well, from, the, from their point of view, it all isn't. Right, all right, from an You're not doing it for the African National Congress or for, um, for any particular group. Indeed. Uh, we'll squeeze in another couple of questions if there are. And then, but uh, because um, Nadine Gordon is actually doing a live program later and also a book signing after this, after that, sadly, we must stop. There's a, there's a hand over here. And is there one more? Well, there's a modest one that I can't see, although obviously you can. Could you put, thank you. <coughs> Ms. Gordon, um, I have heard just recently people saying that the the boycott, as far as the theatre and culture generally were concerned, were actually harmful, whereas sport and um, finance obviously were extremely important. Um, as a South African who worked with, obviously with anti-apartheid while it was needed to be worked with, I wondered if you had a view on that. Well, the, the boycott, which was um, academic as well as, as um, broadly cultural, I think that it was hard. It had some bad effects, but it was absolutely necessary. Because most of the, um, in the theatre for instance, theatre groups would come and because of the structure of the country, the theatres were in white areas and for a long time they were open only to whites. So it was only the privileged who were losing the privilege. The vast majority of the black population suffered nothing of that cultural boycott because they had never had access to culture. It had, so far as the theatre was concerned, one very good effect in that it developed our own theatre. It developed a non-racial theatre. It um, developed from, from blacks came a style of acting that unlike the um, RADA-based one that had prevailed, as I think it did in, in all the ex-colonies, um, the new style of acting that blacks brought, brought in, that came out of their own lives, brought a new style of acting to the white actors, body language, music, um, a sense of, of, of fun and drama that um, was not there before. So it was indeed, the boycott was creative so far, far as that was concerned. Uh, this is a return to the question of the loss of the African voice in writing. Um, I just wonder whether the desegregation of schools and therefore the increased exposure of African students to an English canon is actually going to make the situation worse rather than, uh, than actually open up their opportunities for writing, whether it will silence an African voice. No, it won't, because of course the, the, the works that are being studied in these schools, um, the whole curriculum is being changed and there will be far more opportunity for both um, black and white. It'll be a very good opportunity for the, for the white students too to, to study African, African writing, literature that comes from Africa, African ideas, African philosophy. For the first time, this will be part of the, the curriculum in schools. So it will have, um, indeed, the, the opposite effect. Is, is there an appetite for that? In, in this country, there's an ongoing tussle between those who, who want to see a, a common culture um, and, and those who, who favour the, the variety and, and complexity of the plural culture in this land of, of, of nations and, and communities mm. and, and regions. 
Um, and I guess people here would favor the latter, although I don't think the two are incompatible. But is, is there a, a sense that people want to embrace the cultures they haven't been familiar with on all sides? It's very difficult to say. You see, the um, South African blacks, perforce, but nevertheless, oddly enough, it, it now turns out to have this um, unexpected benefit. They indeed took to themselves European culture, European language, and um, the whites simply ignored the, the African culture that, that was there. If I think of my own childhood, I've written about this, but it bears repeating. I'd wake up on Sunday morning in this mining town and hear drumming and music. And what was that? Oh, that was the mine boys getting drunk and amusing themselves. Nobody told me that, that this was African music. Then it became, now it's fashionable all, all over the world. What was music? Music was me badly playing some little thing on the, on the piano with my, I may say, Welsh music teacher, Miss Williams. <laughs> Apartheid is officially dead. Is, is it still twitching? Feebly. Feebly twitching. Uh, you know, people, not a, de, de Klerk is the great pragmatist of all time, but um, he has many, many followers. Yes, you, you spoke very highly of Mandela. What do you think of Mr. de Klerk? Well, it's difficult. People like me, we can't help remembering that the last thing de Klerk did, he was Minister of Education, and he produced the most iniquitous bill. Uh, so iniquitous indeed that even the, um, the, the Afrikaans universities could not accept this. It, was, it took away from them all autonomy. And indeed, it didn't get passed. But this was his bill. So this is his background. I don't believe in a change of heart. I think he's a clever man and, as I say, a supreme pragmatist. A good illustration of what a difficult business reconciliation is. Yes. Mm. We're going to have to stop, but uh, Nadine Gordimer will be in the book tent uh, signing copies of None to Accompany Me. And as I said earlier, you can hear her speaking with Margaret Atwood on Radio 3 tonight, live, at quarter to 11, which um, rather puts the kibosh on... Oh, well, no, it doesn't. It, 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 it should be a lovely, <laughs> lovely dinner. Everybody retired. <laughs> <laughs> and what else do I have? Yes, labels, labels. Uh, is the independent sponsoring this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's just I was I was looking looking through the cuttings. I, I saw the when you were um, awarded the Nobel Prize in 1991, it, it, the, the the Independent had a headline which said Nobel Prize goes to muscular South African liberal. Neither <laughs> um, liberal nor muscular. I wondered if you'd accept the label. I accept neither. <laughs> Mr. De Klerk is the liberal, not me. The final thing I should say is that uh, just before we came on, um, Nadine Gordimer told me that she's going to look up her, her Welsh ancestors mm. um, in Cardiff. So if there are any accredited archivists in the tent, uh, we might be interested to see you later. But for the meantime, thank you for coming. And can I ask you to thank Nadine Gordimer very much indeed. <laughs>